the point is that connection and that realization and that um, and just the entire way of relooking at your relationship with your environment and your food and your health and your diet. Those are the powerful takeaways from something like that. Hi, and welcome back to The Core. I am really excited about this week's episode. When I started the podcast, Dr. Bill Schindler was somebody that I knew I wanted to talk to and learn from, and I'm so grateful that we were able to sit down and have a discussion. Bill is a food archaeologist, a chef, and a co-star on National Geographic's show, The Great Human Race. He is passionate on following what he calls the modern Stone Age diet and finding connection with the foods that him and his family put into their body. I really wanted to have Bill on the show because I think it is so important to be connected with where your food comes from and knowing that you are sourcing the best ingredients that you can find. Actually, after hearing him on another podcast, I ordered a quarter cow from a local farmer and I just really enjoyed the relationship that I started with both the farmer and the butcher. And it was just a really amazing experience. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I think I was so excited to talk to him that I stumbled on my words quite a bit, but his message is just so so essential to hear. I really think you will like it. Thank you for listening. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and welcome to The Core. Ah, truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so could to start, could we go into your background a little bit? What was it like growing up as a kid, and then how have you ended up where you are today? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in Monmouth County, New Jersey. So I was in the suburbs of New York City. Actually, most of my friends' parents worked in the city and commuted regularly. Um, I was right on the train line. So I was also about five minutes from the beach, or about 10 minutes from the beach, five miles from the beach. And, you know, all these things certainly influenced my outlook on the world. Um, You know, it it was difficult for me to really get outside, outside, or at least I thought so, you know, in the middle of what I considered at that time, uh, nature. So, uh, my father spent a lot of time, a lot, spent a lot of effort trying to get me into the woods, hiking, fishing, hunting, trapping, doing all those sorts of things. I used to trap behind the Monmouth County Library. In a, you know, again, we <laughs> lived in a suburban area, and it, there was a little creek called Parker's Creek that ran back there, and we used to trap, sneak back there and trap muskrats. Um, but hunting was a little more difficult. It took it, it took a lot. Uh, we had to go a lot further to do this. So he put, brought me up to. Uh, the Delaware Water Gap, which is a beautiful little area up in northwestern New Jersey uh, on the Delaware River, which was a several hour drive. So to to go and do these to, to me at that time growing up to go and be outside, like to be in what I considered nature was an effort. You had to, you know, walk outside, pack everything up, get in the car, drive for several hours, go experience nature, then come back home, um, which I think will get back to that, my change in that viewpoint now, but at least that's, that's how I grew up. But it, I was wonderful that my father spent all this time doing that. And at the same time, my mother and my grandmothers had me in the kitchen all the time. So I was just immersed in, in nature outdoors and then, and cooking uh, at home. But despite all this, I had, I grew up with this incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. Now, as, as a young kid, I was I was overweight. I was dumpy. Um, I got made fun of all the time. I got beat up all the time. And, uh, you know, I, it, to me at that time in my in my life, food was something that made me ugly, made me fat, made other kids make fun of me. It wasn't something that I felt was nourishing. It was something that I had a very um, uh, unhealthy relationship with. And then I became a division one wrestler, uh, eventually wrestled for Ohio State. And 
I had the, uh, I was under the advice of nutritionists and doctors and team uh, coaches and captains and all this um, people, very learned people that were telling me what I should be eating. Uh, my body transformed, not because of the change in diet, but, but because of I was working out so incredibly hard so many times a day. But I went from one unhealthy relationship with food to a completely different one. I mean, wrestling and food, we yeah. all know, and it's even it was even worse in the 90s, right? So food at that time was something that uh, I was scared of. Food was going to cause me to not make weight or, you know, whatever, or have to work harder to make weight. Yeah. And then after I uh, finished with college, um, and I was no longer a Division One athlete. Um, the weight came back on, and I started suffering from all sorts of metabolic uh, disease, like uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I was heavy again. I had uh, inflammation. I had joint aches. It was terrible. Um, but, and we'll get. I'm sure get to this later on. But I found at the same I, throughout this entire time this love for being outside, this love for being in the kitchen, this love for knowing how you know connecting with nature and where things come from never left. And it was in large part a reason why I became an archaeologist. Uh, I wanted to know how things worked. When I, I wanted to know how to how to make the tools to go hunting the way people did in New Jersey three thousand years ago, not just <laughs> right. And um, and throughout all this all this process and learning about these ancient technologies, I realized that the role of technology and diet were for humans are intricately linked. And um, I through that process transform my view on food and diet and health and the relationship between humans and our environment and our and humans and our ancestors really and through that transform my health my outlook on food and I'm 47 years old and I've never been healthier but it all starts with understanding our dietary past and understanding our relationship with our environment yeah and I know you talk a lot about eating like a human could you dive into what your thoughts on that is or are and the history behind that? Sure. So one of the things I realized, uh, you know, the kind of archaeology that I do is called experimental archaeology. So okay. um, in addition to the kind of archaeology with my picture in your head where we're digging, you know, big square holes in the ground really slowly. Yeah. <laughs> um, in addition to that, uh, the specialty, the part of archaeology that I'm a specialist in is experimental archaeology where I, uh, I'm trained in a number of different ancestral technology, stone tools, prehistoric ceramics, fibers, hides, these sorts of things. And um, when you can imagine, when you pull something out of the ground that's been sitting there for thousands or tens of thousands of years, um, it's been it, all the organic part of it's decayed. It, it's been broken. We, we don't really know what it was. Um, one of the things that I do is I replicate it. I find out how it was made. So I replicate how it was made using the same processes, the same tools, the same rock, the same clay, whatever. And then use what we think it was in a number of different experiments to try to understand how it was used in the past, how it functioned, how okay. useful it was, those sorts of things. Yeah. So, you know, coming from that perspective, this this really strong focus on technology, um, it, it started you know, really when my, when my daughter was born and my wife wanted me to take this passion that I had for stone tools and all these other things and bring it into the house and have it do something with her, help our family. Yeah. Um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to understand, and she's right, right? Why do something if it's not going to help the people that you love most? Um, I tried, I spent a lot of time trying to understand what is the link between all these things I've been doing my whole life, this, this battle with my weight, with my health and with my, my body image and, and food, this spending out time hunting, spending time in the kitchen, all this technology, what is that link? And when I yeah. really sat down and thought about it objectively, I realized that almost every single prehistoric technology from stone tools beginning almost three and a half million years ago through all the different, you know, millions and tens of thousands of years have to do with food. 
getting food, processing food, storing food, redistributing food, sharing food. And when I when I really, really thought about it, it, it wasn't just a coincidence. Like all of the major minds over hundreds of thousands of years of, of our ancestors, all the ones that were the, the best thinkers were putting their effort into making a technology that had to do with food over and over and over again. And if that's true, which I think it is, then there's something powerful about that realization and, and something uh, transformative about the understanding that of the role that technology plays in our diets. And here's, yeah. here's sort of the basis for, for my viewpoint now. Um, we, w- one of the things that's different about humans from any other animal on the planet, except our domesticated ones, which we've kind of screwed up for the same reasons, is that we are incredibly weak. We're incredibly inefficient. We have no business eating most of the foods that we eat. And this is very hard to hear. But um, if you think about it, if you think of other animals and their perception of food, what they eat, if they're left on their own and they're allowed to eat their natural diets. And again, I'm not talking about a cow that we're feeding corn in a feedlot. And I'm not talking about wild, wild animals left on their own. They will eat the foods that their bodies are specifically designed to detoxify and turn into something that their bodies can make use of, right? Um, humans don't do that. We are complete omnivores and we eat all sorts of things and we're not designed to safely break those foods down to derive the maximum amount of nutrition from them. Uh, So what we've done, however, is we've created these technologies and approaches to food that allow us to do outside of our bodies before it touches our lips, all the things that other animals can do inside of their bodies. So for example, um, cows have something called a rumen. um, Mm -hmm. And this is a fermentation chamber, one of the four chambers in their stomach. And they can sit out in a grass field, I'm looking at a grass field across the street. They can stay in a grass field and eat grass or tough vegetable materials with incredibly tough cell walls with a nutrition that's completely inaccessible to our bodies yeah. and, and mean, and support these, these bodies, these huge bodies, because they eat this grass. They do, they, they're specially designed teeth that break it down. It goes into a rumen, it ferments, then it, they spit it back up and they chew it again and they swallow it and it ferments and back and forth and back and forth. And literally two thirds of the day, one third of the day, they're sleeping mm-hmm. two thirds of the day. They're doing something called chewing the cud, which is chewing and regurgitating their food. And the other third of the day, the food is fermenting. They spend two thirds of their day with specially designed apparatus in their bodies, breaking down tough vegetable material. Humans, we try to eat tough vegetable materials and we, you know, we eat things like kale, right? And think we're doing this incredible thing, but kale is really tough for a reason. Yeah. It doesn't give it. And, and, and we can't get the same amount of nutrition from tough vegetable materials as cows. And we certainly can't get nutrition from grass. And this goes on and on. So it, the difference between humans and other animals is that we have an incredibly inefficient digestive tract and require technologies to make food safe, nutrient dense and bioavailable before we eat that food. And if we do anything different than that, we're going to be malnourished and we're going to suffer from all sorts of other metabolic diseases. And that's yeah. what eating like a human is all about. Okay. And what are the what are some of the tools that you've uncovered during your archaeological uh, digs and things? Have you found anything cool? Oh, absolutely. And, he, and here's the cool thing. Um, that those technologies, the major technologies that we use to transform raw materials that we have no business eating into the foods that we literally built our species on, right. Um, are, are simple. 
they're incredibly simple but powerful. So a stone tool is a great example. The earliest – so I, if I found tons of stone tools, I haven't found the earliest. The earliest was found by somebody else. Um, the earliest stone tool to date ever found dates to 3.3 million years ago. I mean, wow. think about that. Almost yeah. three and a half million years ago. And it's no coincidence that the earliest butchering sites that we see um, occur at almost exactly the same time. So we've had meat in our diets as humans for almost three and a half million years. Um, but let, let me tell you a quick little story about a stone tool and, and the power of, of, of that. So prior to three and a half million years ago, our ancestors, our Australopithecine ancestors, were small. They Full-grown adults were about three and a half feet tall with okay. little tiny brains. Their nutritional requirements were low. And the, every bit of food that they accessed, what they got with their hands and their teeth and their nails. And you know what? They're... Their hands and teeth and nails aren't much different than ours. There's not much they can get that way. So they ate a limited amount of wild plants, a limited amount of wild, you know, wild vegetables and fruits, and a limited amount of insects. And insects yeah. of those are the most nutrient dense. And that was fine. They could support those bodies, those little bodies, those little brains on that diet. But something strange happened three and a half million years ago. So um, out on the African savanna, and this is the mm -hmm. time period we're talking about, uh, the Pliocene, and huge savanna. I mean, if you if you want an image in your head of what it looked like in Africa during this time period, that this transformational, like this this invention, that transformational time moment happened, it's really like think of Lion King. I mean, huge <laughs> savanna grasslands. It really wasn't at that time much different than we than we at least picture most of Africa today. Yeah. So we have these little small ancestors running around and they're noticing time and time again i can only imagine what it was like that when uh, a predator and the same thing happens today with a predator a predator like a huge lion or something like this when they when they kill another animal they'll take it down and the very first thing that they do is begin to rip it apart with specially designed canines and teeth mm -hmm. for that purpose but they will eat the organs and the blood and the fat first and gorge themselves yeah quite often leaving the meat behind and then they'll go off and sleep like they're gorged and now they need to take a nap. So they'll, they'll do this. They'll dive inside, eat all the good stuff and then go off and sleep. And during while they're sleeping, you know, I can imagine that our ancestors watching the buzzards and the hyenas or whatever their ancestral animals were coming in and grabbing and ripping meat off this carcass at, at, a, at a moment of somewhat safety when the predator is off sleeping before it returns to eat more. Sure. So but here we are. I mean, how. I actually, when, when we did the show, The Great Human Race, I had the opportunity to run in and do something just like that. There was, there was a, <laughs> a, a, a huge animal had been taken down and, and all that was gone. And I came in, me and my coaster, I came in and we, went, we, we had a moment of time to run in and get as much as we could. And I never felt so weak in my life. Like yeah. I, I, you can't rip huge hunks of flesh off with these fingernails and we're not strong enough and our teeth are not designed for this. So here we have our ancestor watching all of these animals that have you know anatomical adaptations to allow them to rip off hunks of flesh and do things with this i mean and in this food this incredible food is inaccessible to them but at that moment sometime one of the smarter ones in the group decided to pick up two rocks of the right material bang it together and in less than a second produced a durable sharp edge that rivaled the canines on that predator just as sharp just as durable and with that sharp edge could run in hack off large pieces of meat in no time and bring that back to consume with the safety of their camp with everybody else. That was transformative. I mean, again, a tool that took less than a second to make uh, completely transformed our relationship with our environment, our food, our diet and health. 
And that was the most nutrient-dense food they've ever experienced. And over time, as those technologies developed and changed, they got bigger, they got smarter. It, it supported all the body sure. and brain growth. So yeah. you guys have technology, stone tools, fire, eventually ceramics and being able to cook in, in vessels directly on heat. Mm -hmm. Fermentation is probably one of uh, – is probably the fourth or one of – you know, sits right up there with the um, most powerful food processing technologies we've ever invented. Yeah. And when they were able to do that, they would eat the whole animal afterwards as well because then they could kill as well and then eat the organ meats, eat all the other meat, and use the whole animal – for whatever else they could do, right? Right. No, and then that, and I'm glad you brought that up. Here's here's the funny part. When we start hunting, I'm sorry. When we start scavenging, so we're sure. in that case, we're scavenging the leftover flesh from uh, from other animals' kills with these stone tools. Fantastic. We don't see a huge change in body size or brain size when we start doing this. Now, it could be a result of it's not happening that frequently, but uh -huh. uh, it's probably more uh, a result of the fact that. Flesh or meat is a heck of a lot more nutrient dense and power packed with all sorts of vitamins and minerals and protein and, and fat, right? We do it the right way. Um, much more than vegetables are or fruit mm -hmm. are. Um, but it is the least nutrient dense part of an animal. And those predators know that, right? Those predators would go in and take the best, most nutritious parts of the animal, the organs, the blood, and the fat, take that first. Yeah leave the scraps behind, which is the meat. And it's a completely different way of thinking than today, because today we value, right? We think we value sirloins. And um, but what changes when we really see the most incredible change in our evolutionary past isn't for another million and a half years. It isn't when meat is introduced in our diets. It's when we start hunting. Okay. And at two million years ago, we start to hunt. At least that's what the archaeological uh, record suggests. And when we start to hunt, that means we are the predators. We have first access to any part of that animal that we want to use. And when we do that, our bodies and brains transform. Our bodies grow to almost modern size proportions. Our brains grow to almost modern size proportions. And it's because of, not because of meat, right? It's because of fat and organs and blood and all of those connective tissue. It's all those parts of the animals that we aren't really in our diets today for most modern Westerners, but yeah. are the most incredible part of an animal. Yeah. And so I first heard you on the Wise Traditions podcast, and mm. you talked a lot about eating nose to tail there and the benefits of it. And then that kind of prompted my wife and I to buy a quarter cow from a local farmer that we have. And we've been absolutely loving it. It has been just a really good experience to one, talk to the farmer and then talk to the butcher they asked what cuts we want. We kind of went back and forth. And then we had all, we had one cow, well, well, a quarter of a cow, but one animal and everything we ate was from that same animal. It was, it's just been a really good experience for us and we've really enjoyed it. I am so glad. That's awesome. Um, could you talk about what it means or what the benefits are eating nose to tail and why you think it's important for people today to do that? Sure, I would love to. And in fact, it's one of the things that I'm uh, I'm most passionate about with the work that I'm doing is exactly what you said. Yeah. So let, let me start off by saying maybe some of the negative uh, uh, consequences of us not doing it, really, and then dive right in if it's okay. So we love, you know, 
one of the problems of modern society, the way we approach food, the disconnect that we have from where yeah. our food comes from, is that we 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 mask in this shroud of what we call convenience and and and, and, and uh, advancement. The idea that we, oh we oh we we don't have to worry about the animal. We don't have to worry about raising the animal or the death of the animal. Not even not only don't we have to do it, we don't even have to think about it. Right? Yeah. Modern people should just go to the store and buy the package bits of food, you know, the package bits of meat that are in the styrofoam with the plastic and bring it home and not worry ourselves with the other part. And there's a lot of unfortunate consequences of that. First off, we are, when we feed ourselves, right, we are, uh, when we put food into our mouths, we are doing a uniquely human thing, right? And the focus of it should be nourishment. And that is for, for all their animals. But what's unique about humans is we are conveying to the world every time we shop, Every time we make a decision at a restaurant, when we used to go to restaurants, <laughs> we, every time that we cook for our family or eat on the table or put a fork of food into our mouths, we are, believe it or not, conveying to the world all sorts of information about us, our traditions, our beliefs, our socioeconomic status, our politics, our take on the world, sustainability, ethics. All of it is involved with literally every bite of food that we eat. So the way that we regard our food, the interaction that we have with our food, our connection to our food is a uniquely human thing that has a lot of consequences, good and bad. And when we remove ourselves from that process, um, bad things can happen. And we've seen it as, as we've gotten further away from our food, disconnected, especially with animals, all sorts of horrible things have been happening to animals and that food system behind our backs, right? Yeah. As, as we've turned our heads. Um, so one of the things that I think we need to do, if nothing else, is put a face back on the plate, right? I did a post about it a while ago on Instagram and I put a, we were here, butchered a pig and I put a pig's head on a plate and put it at the table and said it real nice. And it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be gross. The idea yeah. was we should, obviously nobody's going to look at that pig's head and sit down and dine on it, at least not anytime soon. But the idea is Everybody at that table, whether we're eating a hot dog or a hamburger or a sirloin, should be thinking about that animal. It's not something we, um, you know, it's not something gross, right? We, 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 we think for some reason that thinking about the animal that we're eating is a gross thing or it's somehow, no, it's the best way to honor that animal, to think about the fact that something lived hopefully a good life and was, and, and was treated the right way, was humanely killed, and most importantly, Every part of that animal has been used to nourish somebody in my family. That, to me, is an ethical, beautiful thing. And to yeah. even talk about that animal at the dinner table is a wonderful thing. It's honoring. It's almost, and not to be gross, but really, to, it, it's almost like going to a funeral and talking about the, remembering the person that died. It's one other way to honor that. So the closer you can connect to um, where your food is coming from, uh, whether it's plant or animal, but in this case, animal, the the more visceral connection there is, the more um, uh, responsibility that's there and the more respect, in my mind, uh, is in the entire process. So there's several ways to do this. Um, in our house, we do a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, um, uh, a lot of our own butchering in our own homes. And that is a great way to do it. And I realize that some of those activities for a number of different reasons might be or you might seem are inaccessible. This people listening might think are inaccessible to them. They're not, but um, it might take steps to get there. Yeah. Even the smallest steps. I mean, we're talking about lives of animals and our own health and sustainability and ethics. So um, any little step can help. Small things like if you go to the grocery store right now and buy chicken breasts, 
and walk home. Maybe the best thing you should, you know, one step closer, what you can do is go and buy the entire chicken at the grocery store. I mean, it's very funny that in this country, at least where I live here, um, you know, if you look at the poultry area in the in the meat section, it's mostly chickens and 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 and, and turkeys that have been taken completely apart, repackaged, and there's yeah. a little tiny section where if you're lucky, you can get a good whole chicken. Yeah, um, we lived in Ireland for a year. It's the exact opposite. Like it was the entire chicken dominated the poultry section, and sometimes you could get breast or thighs or something like this. Wow. So doing that is important for a couple reasons. One is because you are bringing home something that resembles something that once lived. So, yeah. you know, the, the, there's power in your kids being a part of this process. But even if they're not, there's a credible power in them watching or seeing. Even if they're watching TV, they've realized that you put an entire chicken on the table and now you're carving it up and there's something happening. And, and, and there's stuff, you know, stuff is starting to register in their minds. Plus, you know, we think organic, free range, beautiful, well cared for chickens are incredibly expensive and they are. But if you take that entire chicken and buy it, first of all, there's a reduction in price per pound, but that one chicken is now two or three meals plus bone broth. Yeah. And whereas if you just buy the breast, you have one meal. And so it helps reduce the cost. It also uh, exponentially increases the nutritional value of what you've gotten from that resource. Lean chicken breast, I, I, I never, I never buy lean chicken breast. There's no reason to buy a lean chicken breast. To me, if you gave me a whole chicken and forced me to throw something out, I'd throw out the chicken breast. It has no flavor and has the least amount of nutrition in the chicken. But if you have that entire chicken and it came with the liver and the heart and the gizzard on the inside, and it's got the neck to go into the bone broth pie, you've got all the bones for that. You've got the skin, which there's a number of different things you can do with the skin. And if you don't want to do that, just throw that in the stock pot too. I mean, you have an incredible amount of nutrition that far exceeds what you're getting from just buying the meat. So that, that, that's a simple step. If yeah. you're already buying that entire chicken, then don't do it at the grocery store anymore. Go and meet the farmer or go to the farmer's market. The most, the safest, most connected food system in my mind is one where everybody involved knows one another. You know, our, we do buy meat, right? We buy typically, um, we, we buy large pieces of cows like, like you do and half pigs and whole chickens. Yeah. Uh, and we, the rule in our house is we either have to know the farmer that raise those animals or know the butcher an abattoir that killed them and cut them in half. Um, and they know our kids, like they know our kids by name. We know them. And you know, that's an incredibly safe food system where everybody's connected at that level. So go buy the whole chicken at the farmer's market or at the farmer, go see the farm. I mean, you're actually eating the end product of several months or depending on the animal, several years of an animal under the direction, under the control of this person. Don't you want to know how those animals are being treated, what they're being fed, how they're being cared for, how they're being killed? Um, and then, you know, those are incredibly easy to uh, accomplish steps. And then sort of the next step, which we uh, do in our house quite a bit. And bear with me, everybody listening, because it's not as it's not as difficult as you think. And it's not as um, weird or strange as you think. Go get a half a pig. I can get a half a pig from our local and the guy's only 15 minutes down mm -hmm. the road. Our local butcher who's getting the cows from a local, or I'm sorry, getting the pigs from a local farmer, I can get half a pig for $135. Now, wow. with that half a pig, right, I can, it, you know, we, we not only get all the benefits of breaking it down together as a family, the kids seeing, I mean, it comes with a head on it, so the, the yeah. kids see that it definitely was an animal <laughs> um, and start to be a part of that process themselves and learn incredible skills. 
but we're making, um, you know, everything from we do certain fresh cuts, like we'll do pork chops and, 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 and those sorts of things. We make all our own bacon from it. We make all our sausage from it. We make our, our cured meats from it. We make uh, capicola and copa and we make ham. And then, we, you know, we render the fat and then we take the skin and we make pork rinds and back fat crack ones. All those things are done yeah. from one pig. And this $135 pig, which is what our family pays when we go out to dinner for one meal, can serve our can can serve our family incredible food for literally weeks on end. Incredible food, and we have complete control over the whole thing, and we've all been a part of the process. And what do you think? I know you've touched on it a little bit, but what do you think the lasting benefits are for your kids to be a part of that process as they grow up in our world today? There's great, there's great benefits from it. I mean, and there and there and there some of them. We can see immediately, right? Some of them are things that, and, I, and are tangible. So, again, the conversations around dinner, conversations around just in general about where our food is coming from, our respect for food, our value for food, all, all of that is, you know, a constant thing that we see all the time. But, you know, what's really interesting to me, and one thing that we do in our home, I hope my, are instilling in my children, but also at Washington College where I teach and we have the Eastern Shore Food Lab and we do the same sorts of things there. Um you know, I don't know. You know my daughter started a, a, a sourdough bread company seven weeks ago at the beginning of yeah. all this, and she's and, it, and it's going great. Um, she's 16 years old, so she's going to go off to college. I don't know what's going to happen with it. You know, after the end of it, I, I doubt she's going to end up being a baker for the rest of her life. But she's loving it right now. Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't know if my kids are going to be in any sort of food industry when they're older. But what's really cool is whether they're going to be doctors or lawyers or teachers or whatever they're going to be approaching anything in this world from this um, ethically responsible place that understands sustainability and human environmental connection in a real visceral way is only going to help our future, our future decisions, the people that they're training, the decisions that they're making, you know, all of it. And, and it's something that we've lost over a couple of generations. And it's one of the problems that we have now, you know, there, when, when they sit down and eat a meal, Again, whether it's a, 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 a sausage or whether it's a pepperoni or whether it's a pork chop or whatever it is, they have in the back of their minds an image of an entire animal. And they have an image of a farm. They have an image of a farmer and an image of the farmer interacting with those animals. And, you know, I, you can't put a price tag on that. And it's something that so many people yeah. don't have anymore. We need need to get it back. Yeah. My son is seven months old or almost eight months old now. And I think just us getting the quarter cow the past month or so is our first step towards that. And I want to teach him about where he gets his food and just sourcing good food from quality ingredients and quality people and making sure that the food we have in our house is the best possible for both health and then just communally us eating good food and knowing that it's important to get food from good people and that's kind of where I see us going in the future and trying to do more things sourcing our food. But it's just incredible the stuff you got you are doing with your family. And I really I really appreciate watching and seeing everything that you're doing. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. And what you're doing is yeah. so incredibly important. And, and again, some of these things are tangible. You'll be able to tell with certain conversations and certain ways that, that, that our, your kids act as, you know, that, oh, the message has gotten through. But yeah. a lot of it is, you know, we won't, 
it'll be 10, 20 years from now that they do something or say something or act in a certain way. It's like, you know what? The message got through. And yeah. the entire here's the other part, which is important as well. The entire uh, time that uh, we're acting in this more responsible way, we are promoting and supporting the people that are doing it the right way. The butchers, the abattoirs, the farmers that are raising animals in the right way. And, here, and here's a couple of, and, and, that, and that's incredibly important. Um, and so even if the, the other cool thing, and I know there's so many things to say, and I keep starting to say, one. Um, <laughs> no, it's good. The other, the, one of the things that I advocate quite a bit uh, is cooking from scratch uh, entirely yeah. from scratch. And so sometimes that means, butchering right but one thing that we try to live by in this house as much as possible we don't always achieve this but quite often um almost every meal that we eat nobody else has put together any two ingredients but us right it's literally entirely from scratch we've made the cheese we butchered the animals we've made the sausage whatever it is um and i know we're a little bit fanatical with that and it's again for a number of different reasons people may not want to or might not be able to do some of that and that's fine but what i do suggest and this is this is definitely achievable by everyone um and it's one of the most empowering things that you can do is take the meals that you eat every single day you know the one or or, or all the time you know several times a week or several times a month take those meals and make them completely from scratch at least one time like entirely yeah. from scratch and i don't care if it is mac and cheese or a hamburger and a hot dog but you make that meal 100 percent from scratch even if it's once and even if it's a complete failure and your entire family won't touch it <laughs> you know more about the food at the end of that process you know more about that food that than you ever did before. You know more about that food than you can read in a book. You know much more about that food than any advertisement on the food box or the label will, will tell yeah. you. And what's really cool and empowering about that is that it, you may decide never to do it again. But and and buy all of it already done or partially done, you know, and, and revert back to that, which is fine. But when you go into the grocery store for the first time after you've made it entirely from scratch, you literally go in there as a different person. You are an informed consumer like you've never been before. And yeah. marketing and labeling and advertising mean nothing. You can you can literally look right through that veil and not only purchase um, the highest quality versions of those foods already done, but just as importantly, with your paycheck, with your, you know, with your money, you are supporting the people that are doing it in the best possible way. And yeah. I do believe it is virtually impossible to get to that point without having tried to make something at least once by yourself. Um, because there's so much information out there and 80% of it is terrible and all of it has to do with trying to make money. So by, by you doing it yourself, you are informing yourself in an incredible way. And the other piece I think that's really important, um, and again, I, I do, and this has been part of my life forever, but I wholeheartedly believe in this, trying to take links out of your food chain and shorten that food chain as much as possible is incredibly important for your own health, for your connection with the environment, for sustainability, for all of it. Um, and every little step helps, like going to, if you're buying a whole chicken, go do it from the farm instead. Yeah. But things like what seem like major leaps for us as modern humans, which used to be all that we did in the past, um, like hunting or fishing are incredible ways to do that. And, and I'm not suggesting that you need to hunt for all the meat in your house, right? It's if everybody in the world tried to do that, we don't have enough wild animals to do that anyhow. But doing it every now and then 
reconnects us to this um, ancestral approach to food, ancestral connection to our environment that is incredibly important. But it doesn't have to be about always just about animals. Foraging mm-hmm. is another incredible way to do it. And you don't, and this is what I, to get back to what I, we started this interview with, you know, the idea that I had to get in the car and drive for hours to get into what I considered nature is, was inc- so false. It was great yeah. to go into these beautiful areas that we considered a little more pristine, but you know, I've been foraging since I was 10 years old, and I used to have this uh, Peterson's Field Guide. It was my the foraging guidebook that I used. <laughs> and every time I found a plant, I'd, um, I'd, I'd take the plant and, you know, I'd eat it, but I'd take one of the leaves and I'd press it in the page where it had the, you know, description of that plant. And the little book like this grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. But there were certain plants in that book that I just couldn't identify for years. And then when I was a little bit older, I went on a foraging tour in, in Central Park with a guy named Wild Man Steve Brill. Crazy guy. He's a great <laughs> forager. Um, great guy. So uh, we, he met us in Central Park, uh, and you would like it was this undercover thing, and you'd give him like $10. This is a long time ago. And yeah. uh, he'd start walking. And I remember this moment. We're in the middle of Central Park, and you know we'd taken the train up there. My wife was there. My, my uh, brother-in-law and my sister were there. And, and we start following. He turns. He says, follow me. And he starts walking through this kind of manicured lawn of Central Park. He took about 20 steps. He did this on purpose and turned around and said, look at your feet. And we looked at our feet again in a somewhat manicured lawn in the middle, literally the middle of Manhattan. And I started looking and what my untrained eye, even through all these years of foraging, considered grass was not grass. It was grass and like 20, 30, 40 different plants. And most of the plants that I had been looking for were literally at my feet in the lawn. (laughs) And when I went home, and I went to my, uh, back to my parents' house. I realized that those plants were in the lawn and in the cracks yeah. of the sidewalks. So I, I spent all this time spending uh, all this effort trying to get into the middle of what I considered the woods to go foraging. And I realized that it was literally all around me. So a lot of the foraging tours that I give now are in the middle of cities. I give uh, urban foraging tours in, in, in Washington, D.C. And we did it in Dublin, we, uh, all over. I forage in the middle of Moscow, in the middle of the city. <laughs> So it doesn't matter where you live, what kind of place you live in. You know, these wild plants exist in your backyard, in the cracks of the sidewalk, in in vacant lots. And these plants are the nutritional quality of these plants far exceed anything you can get in the grocery store. Plus, the act of doing it um, is another way of connecting, just like the butchering, just like the hunting, just like the going to the going to the farm. Yeah. And are people shocked once they realize Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it, the, the Washington, D.C. one is great because we, we start at a place called the Hill Center um, sure. and we forage. It's in the, the Hill area in, in D.C. And we and we spend about two or three hours foraging right through D.C. We end at the Capitol. So here again, we are <laughs> at a manicured lawn. I have a great picture of foraging on the Capitol. And, uh, you know, we're foraging. We're picking all these plants in an area where. You know, if you're even thinking about food, you're looking for a restaurant or a grocery store, right? So we forage the entire way and then come back to the Hill Center and then we cook for about three hours. And all the stuff that we've made, uh, we transform into these gorgeous, beautiful, tasty, nutritious dishes. And shocked, shocked. Yeah. And again, that's, people, that's amazing. It is. It, and the people that are there are not going, you know, most of the people that come to the to, to these urban foraging tours live in an urban environment and they're not going to leave a, uh, an experience like that and then feed themselves and their families with what's on the cracks yeah. of the sidewalk but that's <clears> not <throat> the point 
the point is that connection and that realization and that um, and just the entire way of relooking at your relationship with your environment and your food and your health and your diet. Those are the powerful takeaways from something like that. Yeah. Uh, so could we get back to the cooking from home aspect? And one thing we really try to do at our house is cook from home as much as we can. And I know now during the coronavirus, we can't go to a restaurant really, and or things are opening up now, but we've been cooking from home completely over the past eight plus weeks now. Um, you're doing some things about our, or you're doing some webinars on cooking from home. Could you touch on those a little bit? Sure. I'd be happy to. So when, when uh, actually right before about a month and a half or so before the COVID um, thing yeah. really hit us, um, we had, had gotten a bunch of um, requests for uh, month uh, classes, uh, virtual classes online to, cause we have a lot of people following us from different parts of the country and the world uh, yeah. that don't have direct access to come to come and work with us. So they were asking for some sort of interactive virtual sorts of, of classes. So we ran a month long sourdough class from scratch, a month long um, fermented dairy and basic cheese making class, and then a month long uh, nose to tail butchering class. And yeah. they were incredibly successful. It was great because it was, it was a nice combination of, you know, each course started off with a bunch of background materials, um, pre-recorded lectures and things to read and all this to get everybody ready, materials to get. Um, and then it uh, went into live interactive sessions every week where I would do demonstrations. It, it'd be like a cooking class, like you're in my kitchen, but you were there virtually. And they sure. were great. Um, in fact, the nose of tail one ends, ends this, this Saturday. But what we found was that there were so many people, especially when COVID hit, so many more people wanted um, – to do this on their own, um, mm -hmm. on their own time. And what we started getting a bunch more requests for were, were pre-recorded um, completely from scratch uh, classes so that they could watch them whenever they wanted at their own time and re-watch re them and re-watch them. So we're right now in the midst of putting together a whole suite of, um, of these pre-recorded uh, virtual classes that do several different things. Um, and there'll be a lot of different options to access them. One is it, you, it'll teach you how to make all sorts of things from, from mayonnaise yeah. scratch with, you know, with the highest quality fats and omega threes and all this, that is incredibly delicious. So basic things like that, fermented ketchups and whatnot to um, more, um, more robust and advanced classes where you're making sourdough bread from scratch or butchering a pig from scratch or doing, you know, all, all of this, there's going to be a lot of butchering classes as well. But the final piece that we're working towards is being able to put these together so that, you can do that, what I mentioned earlier, that very powerful thing of making an entire meal 100% from scratch. And we're doing it with basic foods or basic meals, not off-the-wall things that you would only eat once a year. Things mm -hmm. like um, grilled cheese and tomato soup or hot dogs and hamburgers or pizza, yeah. tacos, where every single element of that meal you're making entirely from scratch, from, from literally the raw ingredient all the way through. Um, and the, you know, the stories that come along, we, we tell a lot of the stories of the people that we've encountered around the world, uh, indigenous and traditional groups and, you know, cheese makers in the mountains of Sicily, or whether it's uh, an insect farmer in Thailand, you know, all, all of, all of these stories come out. So it's a great opportunity to not only learn how, um, to make these foods entirely from scratch, but also learn a lot about the, um, traditions and, and the, the archeology span that led up to, making these foods, but also some of the people around the world that are still engaged in doing these, in practicing this on a regular basis. Yeah. And then not only that, just the health benefits of knowing every ingredient that went into 
your meal and there's no artificial flavors or things of that nature to that you don't really know is in your food, but it's kind of at the bottom of the ingredient line and kind of is just there and you don't even know about it. Absolutely. So you have, by, by doing this, you have complete control. By making food from scratch, you have complete control over every ingredient that goes in. Just as importantly, everything you want to keep out. Yeah. But um, also just importantly, and this is how we sort of started the interview as well, and it's incredibly important. Um, everything that we do, we use those ancestral approaches to food that make them safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable. The very thing that I, I started off by saying what makes what, what eating like human a human is all about. Um, we're using those same approaches, techniques, and technologies to make food safe, nutrient dense, and bioavailable. Yeah. And it may seem like it's not a very big deal, but it is because the food processing today that is food processing. That's food processing to make food safe and nourishing. The food processing today are at the expense of the safety and the nourishing qualities of food, and it's solely focused on on big companies making money. Or um, or uh, uh, shipping, or being able to uniformity in food, or shelf life, or whatever, at the expense mm-hmm. of nutrients. Uh, so here's let me give you a really quick, uh, uh, powerful example. So first off, that happens everywhere in our food system. So in if every time we're eating a piece of food that somebody else touched, and the technologies used to do something with that food, whether it's farming technologies or food processing technologies, are at the expense of the safety and the nutrients of those foods. That builds up over time, meal yeah. after meal, day after day, year after year. That's one of the reasons, the most, one of the biggest reasons we have the the, the metabolic health issues that we have today. Um, but those technologies are also simple to do. I mean, we have ancestors doing this in caves with sticks and rocks. Everybody, <laughs> everybody who's listening's kitchen is better equipped than our ancestors' kitchens were. So we yeah. can do this at home. And if you can't do it at home, if you can't make a certain type of food at home you shouldn't be eating it. It has no business going into our mouths. If it requires people in lab coats and test tubes and high dollar equipment, then you shouldn't, it shouldn't go into our bodies. So here's, here's a, a powerful example. So, um, and I, it, it'll be a quick one. Cheese, the, the quick, uh, um, story about cheese is we've been as, as humans consuming dairy from other animals as adults for at least 10,000 years. Um, there's a big debate as to whether or not we should be consuming dairy as adults, but I, I think we should if it's in the right form. Mm-hmm. And the entirety of that time, the dairy has been high quality, has been raw, and it's been fermented. Uh, and there's a huge difference between fermented dairy and that glass of ultra pasteurized skim milk that you pour from the jug in in, in your fridge. Completely different yeah. foods. But one of the major issues with most um, adult, or with like o- over 60% of adult humans around the world, is that as we um, get older, we suppress the ability to produce the enzyme lactase, which breaks down the sugars in milk lactose. And then yeah. all of a sudden, well, we know what the results of that are. And we use that as a, as, a, um, as a basis for saying, well, maybe we shouldn't drink milk. Well, that's a silly argument because uh, to base it on that, because we shouldn't be eating most of the foods that we eat. We have no business eating grains, no business eating meat, no business eating almost everything that we eat without doing something to it first before we put it into our mouths. Yeah. Right? Um, so and, and milk dairy is no different. And that's what we've been doing for 10,000 years. So when we ferment dairy, we're actually when we make cheese, we're actually replicating what happens in the stomachs of baby mammals 
even including baby humans, when they drink milk from, from their mothers. And it's a much longer story than I have time for here, but I'll give you the quick takeaway. When we ferment dairy, the lactobacillus bacteria, and we have to mm-hmm. ferment dairy when we make real cheese, the lactobacillus bacteria eat the lactose, that's the food, and produce lactic acid and all sorts of other things, break down the dairy, a lot of things happen. But the important part of this point is that it eats the lactose, right? The very thing we have difficulty digesting as adult humans. So yeah. if you eat real cheese, um, either there's either very little lactose left or in some cases, no lactose whatsoever. Uh, and it's a completely different food for us. That's if cheese is made the right way. So here's, a, here's an example of making something from scratch at home and the difference between buying it at the store and not only the knowledge behind what, why they're different foods, but also how it helps your bodies. Mozzarella cheese is something we make stretch curd cheeses like mozzarella literally, mm-hmm. literally weekly here. And, we, and, um, and uh, there's a whole suite of stretch curd or pasta filata cheeses around the world, like mozzarella, provolone, ragusano, and, and, and the list. That's just Italy. The list goes on and on. Um, what, to make that cheese, in order to get the cheese curds to stretch properly, you have to take the pH from about 6.8, which is almost neutral, like seven is neutral. Uh-huh. And Produce enough lactic acid that the pH drops to 5.2. And that's going to be the fermentation. And when it hits 5.2, you can stretch the cheese and make the mozzarella cheese. The way it's done traditionally is it ferments for some time, depending, usually 8 to 10 hours. And through that process, there's a lot of chemical and physical things happening to that dairy, including the reduction of the lactose. Yeah. The other way way to achieve that pH of 5.2 is to throw in citric acid or vinegar, and you can change the pH in a second. So all of a sudden, you've taken this dairy, changed the pH artificially. You've been able to stretch the cheese and make something that looks and tastes like mozzarella cheese, but is in fact a very a completely different food. And if you're lactose intolerant, then it's a really incredibly different <laughs> food because that mozzarella cheese at the end of the production, the fake one, um, has just as much lactose in it as if you drank that glass of milk. Yeah. But if you make that cheese for real, there's very little lactose left in the final product. And here's the problem. Most of the mozzarella cheese that you buy at the store, most of the mozzarella cheese that ends up on top of pizza is fake. Yeah. It's made in the shortcut method and is a completely different food for you. So, um, again, understanding that is great and you know what to buy now. You know how, how to buy the right cheese. But making it at home, even that simple act of making mozzarella, which is easy to do in your own kitchen to do it the right way, is uh, produces a food that is a completely different food with the same name but a completely different food for your body. Yeah. That's incredible. Okay. So I want to be respectful of your time. I do have one last question. Is there anything sure. that you do is there anything that you do on a day-to-day basis to ensure that you're better the next day? Wow, that's a great question. Anything I do on a day-to-day basis that ensures that I'm better the next day. Yeah. I make sure that we have a little bit of downtime before bed with the entire family and with my wife. Um which is, and I know that may sound like a, um, it's not that big of a deal, but it is day after day. And this is how we oh, yeah. do it. And this is how we do it in our house right now. And, you know, we, it's always been important to us to spend time together and sort of recap and recoup. And even if it's for a few minutes, make sure we get, you know, hugs and kisses, kisses and personal contact. All of that is incredibly important. Um, but uh, since COVID started, one of the ways that we have done it 
mm-hmm. is to um, we have this tradition now every day um, we come together and we have a we always have a pot of bone broth going in the house. Always. Yeah. Um, and I just replenish it day after day. So um, we've since COVID started, we have this uh, it's it's um, it's called Hunter's Stew or the perpetual broth which is the way bone broth used to be done in the past where you, you just have a pot and you're always adding to it. You're always adding to it. So there's always a little bit left over. And so we have this pot of perpetual broth. It's, um, you know, we heat it up every day. We put it in the wall in the, in the fridge overnight, heat it up every day. And the routine is we come together midday um, and we have this broth. And now first of the reason we started it uh, was because bone broth is incredibly nourishing. And I want to make sure we, we're hitting, if this COVID is coming into our house, we're hitting it with the best immunity possible. Exactly. So there, there's a nutritional value to it. But there's also another reason. Um, there's something called an axis mundi in anthropology, which means the center of the earth. And okay. all of our ancestors who were hunters and gatherers, which is what we were for the majority of the time we've been on this planet, were mobile, right? And moved around on a regular basis. And what we see in all these hunter-gatherer groups, and even in modern ones, that they all had something called an axis mundi, which typically, uh, when they found a new place to camp, was something they stuck into the middle of the encampment, usually like mm-hmm. a stick. And it represented the center of their earth. The axis mundi means the center of their earth. And what it did was it was like, for them, or people that were moving on a regular basis, the feeling for most of us who are sedentary what our homes are like, the feeling of home, the feeling sure. of comfort, the feeling of regularity or, or something that's, uh, you know, that we can recognize. And that was incredibly powerful to them. It was important for them, even though they were in a new place, to recognize this is home. And that, and it was that stick in the middle of the encampment. So in, when, when COVID started hitting and still, you know, it, we were thrown into loops. We didn't know what was happening with jobs or school or anything. And I wanted that sort of centering for our family every single day uh, built around nourishment. So we built it around that and, you know, we come together and it's 15 minutes. It's not a big deal, yeah. but we come together and stop everything else. All social media is turned off and we have a conversation, plan the rest of our day and have that access moon dive. So I would, that's it. it. It's that every day. That's what we do to make sure because that recenters us and gets us ready for not only the rest of that day, but the day after as well. Yeah. And that's so important. Just having the family, connection with no distractions just for a few moments throughout the day can really help benefit everyone together. And especially during the times of coronavirus, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's been one of the silver linings too. Our family's always been close. We always try to spend a lot of time together, but we are really in in the midst of all the other craziness, Uh we're really valuing um, our time together at home right now, especially, you know, I have Oh yeah. Two kids in high school and they're going to be off to it. It's, 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 it's awesome. But the problem is we get lost. It's so easy to get lost in, um, in all the rest of the craziness and, and the responsibilities and the online and the zoom meetings and all this, that uh-huh. even though we have that opportunity to have time together, we may waste it without yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. And I've, I've gotten to be home throughout this whole time frame, and I've seen my son go from like just kind of pushing up to now he's crawling and pulling himself up onto the couch. It's it's just been incredible to see, and I I've gotten to wit- witness the whole process, which has That's been so fantastic. nice. What a gift yeah. that is! That's oh yeah. So well, it's also a great time. It's a great time to cook, right? Yes. So, so yeah. check, check out uh, when we get all those all those videos live. Please take a look. Um, I, I think they'll be really really valuable to people. I will. Thank you so much. Is there any way people can get in touch with you if they want to learn more or see more? 
Absolutely. So the best, the, the easiest way to get in touch with me is through my website, drbillshindler.com. So it's D-R-B-I-L-L-S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R.com. And we have a mailing list uh, you can sign up for there. So if you're interested in those classes, if you get on that mailing list, we'll push all that information out as soon as possible. There's a ton of information on there, uh, access to other podcasts, our blog, our newsletter, all that. Yeah. You can find it there. And then your Instagram page is amazing as well. Thank you very much. So that's yeah. at Dr. Bill Schindler, both Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter. Yep. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated sitting down and talking with you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to learn more about Bill's work, please check out his webinars at drbillschindler.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe or leave a rating on iTunes. It really helps out. I'm really grateful to have you here. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next week.